Canada, but moved to a place called Moose Jaw. It is a real place, I've been there. It's in the prairies of central Canada. And I was there at the age of 25. He was conscripted into the army in 1917. John was John Parr. This is a house he spent most of his life in, in Finchley, in London. He was born in 1897. It was a time when many children didn't survive long. He was the youngest of 11 children. And most of his brothers and sisters didn't make it to the age of four. He left school at about 13 or 14. He worked as a butcher's boy and then as a caddy at a golf club. When he was 15, in 1912, he joined the army. He told them he was 18 years and one month old to meet the minimum age requirements. He was an infantry scout, and maybe because he was kind of short for a soldier, certainly by today's standards, he was five foot three. Uh, he was part of a detachment whose job it was to ride on bicycles ahead of the main marching troops to scout for his battalion, find the enemy, get their bikes, and go back again. And that's what John Parr was doing a couple of years after joining the army. He was still underage. It was the 21st of August, 1918. He was near a town called Mons in Belgium. This is the spot. This is where he died. He was the first British soldier killed in World War I. This picture is about half a mile from where we used to live in Belgium. You can see on the left hand side a Belgian flag, a British Union flag and a memorial. But look across the road. You might just be able to see a Belgian flag and another flag, it's a Canadian flag, it was hard to see. That's the spot where an outpost of the Canadian forces stopped on the ceasefire on the 11th of November 1918. Less than four miles east of this spot, George Price from Canada was part of the Canadian forces. News had arrived early that morning that there was going to be a ceasefire at 11 o'clock. But the fighting continued right up until 11. George was shot in the chest by a sniper as he was clearing machine gun positions that were overlooking his unit at 2 minutes to 11. George was the last Commonwealth soldier killed in action. About halfway between those two spots is Swanson Forian Cemetery. They're both buried there. Uh, it might be odd to have a favourite cemetery, but Swanson Forian is mine. When you think of World War I and World War II cemeteries, you might think of huge areas with row upon row of graves, like this one in Verdun, which has about 16,000 graves. But Swanson Forian is different. It's a woodland cemetery. Soldiers who fell together were buried together. And Germans, British, and Canadians were all buried together. 
about 284 Germans and 229 Commonwealth soldiers. George Parr, sorry, John Parr and George Bryce are buried a few yards away from each other. As I said earlier, between John and George, between 9 and 11 million were killed in action. More died at the We use World War I as the example, the extreme. Joseph Stalin famously said that a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And of course there's always a danger that the scale and strategy and the statistics of history will we forget the tragedy. I've told you a little bit about George Price and John Parr. I could have told you about others in conflicts long ago and recently. Pictures, details, stories, headstones. But for many graves, there are no stories. The phrase known unto God appears on more than 212,000 Commonwealth War Grave Commission gravestones around the world. The quote uh, is attributed to Rudyard Kipling. He was an English novelist, story writer, poet, uh, perhaps most famous for the Jungle Book. His son, John, died at the Battle of Luce in 1915 and had no known grave. And this personal tragedy was part of what led him to choose this phrase when he was working for what was then called the Imperial War Graves Commission. He didn't say where the phrase, no one unto God, came from, whether it was just a poetic expression or uh, was based on a Bible verse, but the phrase, or something like it, appears in the Bible three times. And I'd just like to share a short thought on each of those times it appears. <clears throat> the first place is mentioned is in the book, just after the Gospels in the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles. And in Acts, Chapter 15, it says, and this is the King James Version to kind of match the phrasing on the, the gravestone. It says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So the context was about an argument. On one side of the argument, you had believers in Jesus who thought that non Jewish believers should follow Jewish customs and traditions and laws. And on the other side were those, including apostles. Uh, Paul, Barnabas, and James, who believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. The apostles quoted from books in the Old Testament, one in particular, the book of Amos, outlining God's plan, written down hundreds of years ago that was now unfolding. And the message paraphrase is written like this. God said it, now he's doing it. It's no afterthought. He's always known he would do it. Known unto God are his plans from the beginning. How great it is to know that God has a plan. <coughs> and that we are a part of it. And that ultimately, victory is his. He said it, he will do it. Now in the 800 years or so between Amos writing that phrase that James quoted and God revealing his plan for non-Jewish believers, 
There might have been few signs to most observers. Many readers may have wondered, maybe doubted. And throughout the Bible there are examples, countless examples of humans losing hope because they're looking at the short time scales of their own lives. Whether it's Abraham being told he would follow a great nation, the Jewish exile into Babylon, the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years, or those who saw Christ being crucified. But when we look at the longest time scales, we see God's hand. That's not to say that when things go wrong, when evil happens, when we fail, that that's God's will and so it's okay because it's part of a bigger plan. The point is this, that despite what happens, God's plan will prevail on God's timescale. As Christians, we can lift our time skills to the eternal. Knowing unto God are his plans. The second place the phrase appears slightly differently is in Paul's letter to a church in Galatia. It's a slightly different wording. It's, um, it says knowing of God. Paul is correcting Galatians who were holding on to some practices from their former lives, their former religions. <coughs> I'll use a message paraphrase again. It said earlier, before you knew God personally, you were enslaved to so-called gods that had nothing of the divine about them. But now that you know the real God, or rather, since God knows you, how can you possibly subject yourselves again to those ten gods? God knows you. The idea here in the passage is that Believers are in a personal relationship with God. Not just that we know God in the same way that you know, we know that King John III is the king, but that God knows us in a way that a parent knows a child. Our God isn't a distant God. He just wants lots of people to be his subjects, respect him and obey him. A large kingdom for the sake of power and prestige. Our God is a personal God who, as we face hardship is with us. Our obedience to him, our leaving behind of old things, is not based on force or fear, but on relationship, trust, love. So in our battles, let's follow our great captain out of a sense of obligation and dependence. Because we, individually, are known unto God. The third time the phrase appears is when Paul, again, is writing to the church in Philippi. In the King James Version it reads, In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, be made known unto God. We live in a broken world of war and pain and loss, but God invites us or commands us to bring our request to him in our anxious moments to pray. How comforting it is to find that we have a faithful listening God and what a challenge to us to be thankful when things are tough.
Those three brief thoughts, known to God, are his plans. His plan will unfold. We will win. Known unto God are his people. He loves us. He knows us. He knows what's best for us. And known unto God are your prayers. Don't be anxious. Accept his invitation and accept his power. That verse from Philippians is in a wider context. So I'm going to share that whole context. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, regard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing one final song.